0: Hello and welcome to the Green Sheets podcast, a conversation about intellectual property focused on what matters most to innovators right now. We discuss managing, monetizing and protecting IP in the context of what's happening now in industry, IP law and beyond. I'm your host, Charlie Leslie, and I'm part of the IP team here at Apple Yard Lees. Joining us for this episode of the podcast are David Clark and Simon Bradbury. David and Simon are both partners at Apple Yard Lees. David has experience managing outside council teams supporting a number of large multinationals and Simon has experience as working as both outside council and as in-house counsel for a multinational. They can give a truly unique perspective as they work together on projects during the time Simon was in-house. Simon and David, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks.
0: David and Simon, the world remains uncertain even for large corporates adapting to changing business drivers, including COVID-19, Brexit and recession. How can the IP departments for large corporates get the most from their outside counsel and what are their priorities right now? Simon, would you like to start?
1: So I, I think uh, when we were asked to do this podcast, we, we're quite a, a good example of of actually um, two attorneys who had trained at a similar time. In different firms, I then went off to go in-house at a multinational corporation. And then ultimately, um, David and I ended up working on some projects when I was in-house and David was outside counsel. So it's quite an interesting dynamic, I think. And now we're both partners in the same firm. So we've worked together, trained together,
2: and you know we've probably seen the push and pull from in-house and outside counsel throughout the whole spectrum. Yeah, I, you're right. It is an interesting dynamic. And I think the thing for me, which has been been the most revealing from it was, you know, after you left your in-house position and came to work in the firm was you were able to be a bit more open perhaps about some of the other pressures that the external counsel probably doesn't really see when interacting on the day-to-day work of drafting, prosecuting, and, and usual kind of patent attorney matters that, A lot of what you would do in house would be around the licensing and the agreements, and it would be around budgets and things that you know we'd only kind of be remotely able to, or kind of through secondhand um, experience, and not be really directly asked to advise or comment on, uh, and kind of understanding from you the extra pressures of the in house team on those angles. Something of an eye opener, really.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, I and mean, of course, all in-house teams are different. They have you know, different remits, different roles. Some are fairly well uh, resourced from a from a you know, number of bodies uh, or bums on seats point of view, whereas others are run as a quite a lean team, quite a lean department. One thing that, that I noticed, and I think David alluded to, was I did quite a bit of patent uh, preparation, prosecution, um, FTO work as well. So freedom to operate, but actually that was just a small. Bit of the work I was doing, and I would get pulled into so many different directions. I used to use it, use the analogy of uh, having about a, a hundred plates spinning on poles, any one of which could, could fall. So I was trying to keep all those up, plus do my day job, which sometimes proved a little bit, a uh, little bit tiresome. Um, but, but very interesting actually, because you got involved with all different parts of the, of the business. And one thing that I relied on outside council for was really just to pick up a lot of the sort of heavy lifting, the, the sort of very resource intense work. So things like oppositions where, you know, you would probably an attorney would spend maybe a whole week or have to block off a whole week just to do the skeleton arguments, pull together amendments to the claims, auxiliary requests, read through all the prior art, read what the opponents have said, try and do a bit of digging and find out why, you know, they're filing an opposition. So all these things were you know, you'd really have to block off a whole week to do. You know, you could hand off to outside counsel; they would, you know, do most of the time do an excellent job. You know, you'd jump in with some additional comments or, or additional knowledge, but that was really handy. And I think outside counsel is still relied on quite heavily by a number of in-house teams to to do oppositions. Oppositions go to appeal often as well, so you know, it it does drag on. Is that right, David?
2: Yeah, that's certainly the case. And I mean, um, for a number of the corporates that I work with, you see. Over time, I mean, it's been twenty years for me in the firm now. uh, This this very week, and over that time, you know, it's been interesting to see the evolution and the complexity of technology that that's coming out of some of the big electronics companies. But actually, as interesting has been to see the increased sophistication of the the, you know the buyers in the in-house IP teams that initially. Maybe go way back. You'd say, "Well, this is a numbers game. We'd, we'd like to increase our patent position, and in order to do that commercially, we need to have patents. So we need to incentivize the R and D teams. We need to have a pipeline, which involves getting outside counsel to do drafting and to help with filing and prosecution, uh, and then we'll get the numbers up. But then, you know, at some point." That's that's a nice aim, but really where's the value there? So, right, well, okay, well, we've got the numbers up. We now need to increase the quality. So we're going to put in place a process so that uh, rather than just being a case of, you know, here's an invention disclosure, take it away, do a white label draft, send it back and we'll handle it. We now want you to actually meet with the inventors. And the part of the, the process is going to be uh, much more hands-on that... Uh, as well as doing the, the drafting, you're going to be involved throughout the prosecution process. you can actually be responsible for the cases. You're going to have them on your books. Okay, that's good. That of course there is a there's a cost angle to that as well. So you know why are we doing this? Where where's the value coming from? And I think you know the increase in sophistication. If you've for the teams that have had the resource and manpower in house to kind of manage it properly, that they've got through this kind of uh, numbers game. They've increased the quality and really it's about producing usable patents at the end and whether that's in litigation to keep the competitors away. Litigation hasn't really slowed down uh, in, the, uh, in the kind of COVID period. And in fact, there are probably, you know, people who are fighting tooth and nail at this time because of the increased pressures that, uh, or maybe it's in the FRAND licensing space that, you know, you want to have these standards essential patents, otherwise you're not really in the game. You know, that kind of progression over time is, has been, you know, fascinating to see really working with the in-house teams where they've gone from um, focusing on one thing, maybe quality, cost, timeliness, to having this more a kind of holistic approach to a usable patent position at the end because they've finally had the ability to link the clever stuff that the R&D teams do to that value proposition that's going to be encapsulated in the patent portfolio that they build.
1: I think, I think also building on that, one thing I've noticed is there's probably been, I'd say, maybe five years ago... Outside council were pretty much being held at arm's length, and the in house teams were, were doing a lot of the internal interactions. But as David said, I think we're getting more and more involved with talking to inventors, you know, and actually getting more involved with the um, invention harvesting and also analyzing the inventions to see whether or not there is a, you know, a really a, a business need or whether it's worthwhile filing patent applications. So we're getting involved in and attending, say, IP committees where you may sit down with maybe 20 disclosures. You know, the inventors are on the, on the call and you go through. And I think because we're outside council, it's a lot easier for us to maybe make an objective and independent decision as to the merit of that particular case. Whereas sometimes in house council, I think, struggle a little bit because it can be a bit political with maybe some inventors having a little bit more sway or a little bit more, uh, pushier, I guess, just to try and get their application, uh, filed for, for their own internal metrics.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic there, isn't it, between the you know the inventors who have this as whatever it is, their project is their baby and they don't want to kind of let it go. Whereas the IP team may have difficulty kind of delivering that message, having someone external to step in and say, look, you know, from a dispassionate point of view, we don't think this really is, is one which is worth investing in. And then, I mean, do you think, Simon, that move is a general thing across the industries that you're involved in? Or is it actually because you've been able to build up very close relationships with the teams to be invited into those kinds of uh, almost like being an internal uh, sounding board.
1: Yeah, I think the internal sounding board is an interesting dynamic. I think there's certainly an ebb and flow depending on you know where you are in the economy. You know, if if the patent department is well funded, then people are happy to spend more money on outside council. You know, it's it's just the it's just the economics of, of life. But if uh, if budgets are under pressure, then I think outside counsel probably get involved less. I think the independent validation is quite an important thing. It also, in-house counsel, may be quite time-limited in reviewing pages and pages of prior art, whereas we can crunch through and and come up with a a reasoned decision. But also, I think outside counsel is often used for providing an independent opinion as well. So, for example, if it's a a freedom to operate opinion or maybe there's a a particular patent that's an issue, then relying on a, an opinion from outside council can be very useful because it's validation of the in, in house counsel's initial opinion. You know, it's been validated by somebody else who's external and therefore a decision can be,
2: can be based on, you know, the, the consensus opinion. Yeah, I see that. that. That's obviously outsourcing the risk to a degree, um, but also giving yourself a bit of comfort that, you know, if the outside counsel is coming at it with fresh eyes and you have the benefit of the previous opinion to work from, that there really is, yeah, something completely independent that you can point to and say, yes, we've had this reviewed. It's been through someone with. The right kind of experience to understand where the issues are and uh, to to validate the previous choice, or you know, to raise a new angle on it which hadn't been considered before. If there are some some differences of opinion,
1: one thing I I noticed when I was in the house was we my line manager and I we instructed an external attorney to prepare a, a draft patent application, and they did duly provide a, a draft patent application which we reviewed, and we were both looking at um, at the claims, and there was one claim one which is the most important claim it just didn't flow right it just didn't read correctly and interestingly i ki- i kicked it around a bit and then my uh, my colleague kicked it around a bit and then we both kicked it around a bit just you know just chewing the uh, chewing the fat and the claim we came up with was i thought you know absolutely stellar it was a really good claim and it just goes to show i think sometimes as well having fresh eyes looking at a piece of work or an opinion or a draft can can really really help and i used to find that a lot when i was Working in house was I was giving work out to outside counsel, and a lot of the attorneys we were working with, we'd obviously pre vetted them. You know, they were very good, very competent, but maybe they didn't have the nuances of of what we actually wanted. Um, so it was ninety percent there, but actually with a bit of tweaking, it was it became perfect. And conversely, if we'd prepared something, we may have missed out on something. Maybe there'd been a new bit of case law. You know, David just referenced um, some uh, some recent High Court decisions. You know, it could be that actually. We hadn't uh, been keeping abreast of the law as, as, as best we should, and there may be a particular reason for drafting an application a certain way. So, you know, more eyes the better. Obviously, uh, there's obviously going to be a cost element to that, but bringing a fresh pair of eyes to the situation can, can certainly help and make uh, the, the work product you know as, as good as it can be.
0: We know that large corporates are not immune to change. So how are the current business drivers of COVID-19, Brexit and recession impacting IP management or strategy for these organisations?
1: I think, uh, I think a lot of companies, for a lot of companies, it's probably a little bit, uh, business as usual. Um, not least because I think the patent function typically, um, operates in the background, um, has quite a steady workflow. I think some companies have certainly looked at maybe trying to look at how they can reduce costs, maybe make things a little bit more e- efficient. But, uh, I work in the biotech and pharmaceutical industries and, and if anything, we've seen probably a bit of an increase in in workload, not least because there's been a renewed focus on 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 vaccines, especially for for COVID nineteen type uh, inventions. Um, I don't know what, what you found, David.
2: Yeah, I think um, the interesting thing, from my point of view, from a consideration of the kind of multinational in aspect, is. The way that different countries have been impacted by COVID at different times. So, uh, rather than say the recession of the global financial crisis two thousand and seven eight and the aftermath of that, here we're seeing something a bit more nuanced. That some countries are very strongly affected for a short period of time, and then things are coming back to more like normality. But that the timelines for that in different countries is kind of shifted in different ways. So initially, we were having clients who are having difficulties with suppliers in the far east whose factories were not operational factories come back on stream but then all of a sudden the idea of exporting to the US where you know there is at that point then a big covid impact uh, is more difficult so uh, that that's I suppose the bigger you are, the kind of more resilient you are to that kind of different phased impact. But equally, the more there is going to be an impact of some kind across the the whole of your operations. You know, people don't want to be necessarily taking big risks or making large adjustments at this stage because, you know, well, the last six months has been something of a write-off and they don't really know how that will come back or whether that is a big, big change, what kind of impact there'll be.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a good point, actually, David. Especially with you know mergers and acquisitions, um, I think now is probably a good time where maybe some companies are looking to to divest some assets, maybe looking at tidying up their uh, their corporate structures, and um, that's certainly an area where you know, outside counsel I think get get involved with in house teams because it's quite um, quite time consuming, quite laborious, and they in in house teams probably don't have the the resources. In order to, to to get the um the transactions recorded and completed at scale and um you know on time, it's very easy for in-house teams just to uh, pick up the phone and get their outside counsel to you know draft confirmatory assignments and uh, contact agents around the world in order to 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 affect those um
2: transactions. Yeah, I guess at uh, this time as well, we've got the looming impact of the end of the Brexit transition period, and if there are that kind of agreement type work or assignment divestments that people need to be making sure that their agreements are written in such a way that they take account properly of what will be happening from the end of 31st of December this year and the start of the the new UK outside of the EU situation that we'll be seeing next year.
1: I think also one thing I was involved with when I was working in-house was uh, we would take stock of all our, say, collaboration agreements or license agreements so we could work out when certain agreements were going to come up for expiry and whether or not we needed to you know, extend those contracts. But especially with Brexit, I think there's certainly been a push for outside counsel to be asked to review a lot of contracts and license agreements to make sure that they are still fit for purpose after Brexit. So for argument's sake, if there's reference to a territory being the EU, then you know, do those agreements need to be restated? Uh, re-executed in order to make it clear that the UK and UK territories are included as you know what would have historically been defined as the EU. It's also good, I think, housekeeping as well. Just to bear in mind that you know there could certainly well be new entrants to the um, you know, EU in the future. You know, it's a good time to maybe take stock of those agreements and, and look at tidying them up if it's required.
2: Yeah, I think another one which has been large in the world of licensing and agreements, obviously, is the UK Supreme Court decision recently handed down in the Unwired Planet and Huawei case uh, relating to FRAND licensing of standards essential patents. You know, the courts haven't stopped during the COVID period that you know there have been moves to get those cases heard and delivered, judgments delivered, despite the other general disruption and that um, you know, this is um, a big deal for the companies that are involved in standards essential patents, particularly as we see five G. You know, on the approach, uh, and that for the in-house teams in a lot of uh, multinational corporations that are involved in the, in that space the really the push to get the technologies that they are working on incorporated into the standards and to make sure that the patents that they are preparing filing prosecuting actually are standards essential and can therefore be included in those licensing pools certainly hasn't gone away uh, and it, it, you know the uh, upshot of the Supreme Court's decision in the Unwired Planet case is that there's even more at stake in making sure that that you are included in those patent pools so that you know you can actively monetize and, and collect some some revenue back from the investment that you've been putting out there. And so that if you're certainly if you're a hardware manufacturer, that you can actually generate some sales there without having to be too concerned about the fact that you're paying out Massive amounts in the license, and not actually seeing any inward income coming back from from the pool.
1: And in fact, I think even the uh, you know, the the Frand type agreements that uh, David's referring to there, those sort of agreements are now filtering down into other areas. So, in my specialist area, um, there's been a lot of interest in forming patent pools around the CRISPR gene editing um, technology. Because there's so many different patents owned by different parties, there's still a bit of an ongoing bun fight over entitlement and um, validity of these patents. But you know, because it's such a groundbreaking technology, there's certainly um, a move to look at these sort of FRAND-type agreements. I, I saw an email in today that was requesting some details of FRAND-type licensing terms, which could be used for, um, for giving a, a limited license for, for COVID-type therapies i think the intention there is if people have technology which could work in order to develop a vaccine then there may be a, a limited free to use license for you know the period of the pandemic and thereafter you know a license revenue would be would be payable for subsequent
2: years do you think that's as a result of wanting to avoid things like crown use provisions or other governmental interventions to essentially free up the accessibility to COVID-related treatments, vaccines, and so on, that by by being shown to be openly seeking licensees and making sure that licenses are available on these commercial terms rather than holding people to ransom over the cure, that this is a kind of preemptive strike to avoid those crown use or, or similar provisions where governments might seek to have patents you know unenforceable in this time sure
1: i think i think the, the crown use is certainly a you know a a valuable issue to raise i don't really think it's i think it's more of an ethical concern and also you have to remember that a lot of institutes doing work in this area are actually publicly funded so for example you may have a a uk university or a us university which is funded by the government Undertaking the research, so you know there is a you know public good in order to uh, offer out these uh, these therapies at least for a short period of time, so that uh, people can get the pandemics under control. But uh, conversely, you know it takes a lot of money to go through clinical trials, even if you're doing it at speed. You know a lot of the big pharmaceutical companies will ultimately want to recover some uh, revenue later down the line. It's, uh, it's, an, it's it's
2: an interesting space. I'd seen um, a lot of commentary about that in the US, as you say, with some of the institutions that are developing these therapies and treatments uh, being publicly funded, and that I think, especially around election time in the US, is probably something of a political hot potato as to whether there are provisions in the US statute that are akin to crown use for the and particularly for these publicly funded patents, or patents which have come out of publicly funded research, but quite wither, well, what, which way the political wind is blowing in the US is quite hard to determine from where I'm standing anyway.
1: Yeah, I've got a few cases on my books where one of the applicants is, uh, is quite literally the United States of America, because it's a, a government-backed research project. So um, it's quite interesting putting, putting in place the uh, post-filing assignments also one one area we haven't touched on is litigation support so being an outside counsel we we have a a range of different uh, expertise in which to uh, to tap we have you know trainees we have newly qualified fully qualifieds we have litigators as well so because we have that full breadth of support it's very easy for a for in-house teams just to be able to tap into that and whether or not that's simply a for an opinion whether we providing some strategic advice or just a you know, likely chance of, of succeeding in a particular court, um, or whether or not it really is a you know full blown piece of litigation, you know it's very time consuming, but actually you know we can put a team around that, or outside councils can put teams around big chunks of litigation, which again frees up resources for the uh, in house counsel, which maybe they don't have, or you know maybe it doesn't free it up, maybe they just don't have that, and they can also tap into. Different expertise, you know, it's very unlikely that an in-house team will have expert litigators, experts, patent attorneys, you know, and also the full range of, say, paralegals and support team to to prepare all the
2: documentation and bundles. Very relevant at this time, from thinking back to where we started this conversation about the, you know, the impacts on big companies of the kind of current COVID situation that. A lot of time, in difficult times, you see litigation on the rise, that there's an, uh, certainly a perception that it's kind of counter-cyclical because there's more at stake to fight for, because although general economic slowdown seems to not have translated into any disruption, or significant disruption through the legal processes in the courts, that, yeah, it's very valid points that we have capacity to, to get involved in that kind of work to support in-house teams as and when it's needed.
1: I think also last minute um, jobs as well can, you know, be very frustrating for in-house teams. You know, maybe there's a an imminent disclosure or a um, or a discussion with a supplier. You know, and in order to safeguard the uh, the position of the company, you know, they they want to get a, a filing on pretty quickly. Something which we get asked to do quite often, and and we can crank the handle and, and get that done.
2: Yeah, you're right. That um, outsourcing the kind of Problem, particularly on time critical jobs, when you have a big team, you can say, "Right, uh, I'm no longer going to do what I was planning on doing. Someone else needs to do that," and we kind of shuffle things around so that the highest priority work obviously gets the attention. Not ideal to be working that way all the time; could be quite stressful. But uh, on occasion, you know, that's the strength of the team, isn't it? That you know we can we can just deal with that, and it's uh, one less thing for the for the in house council to worry about.
1: I, th- I think you know, there's, there's been other jobs as well where you know they are like a huge landscape fto uh, piece of work you know very involved um requiring a lot of you know external searches collating all that data into a, a report or an easily searchable um spreadsheet that could be used for say r&d colleagues rather than the in-house patent team you know things like that you just think it would you know take the in-house team far too long to do but you know outside counsel can 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 put quite a few uh, bodies on it get it done you uh, know in a, in a reasonable time frame and, you know, at at a reasonable cost as well. So uh, I think the big jobs are just as important as maybe just having a trusted pair of hands to pick at the more urgent things.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, David and Simon, for joining us on the podcast today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Yep, it's been good fun. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you'd like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, tweet us at appleyardlees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.